Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. So good evening, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, this is supposed to be a, a public lecture. I know that's being attended by many of the people who are at the conference here, and I want to thank the organizers, uh, George and, uh, and, and, and uh, Pedro Giorgio, and, um, for doing all of this. It, it's a really a marvelous. This is my first visit to Abu Dhabi and to the Emirates, um, and so it's quite, um, quite an interesting cultural exchange, and I'm really looking forward to, to talking to you guys tonight. Uh, when, I, when they asked me about a title for the lecture, um, I offered several different titles, but they all had the word optical tweezers in it. And they said, well, perhaps you should change the title because that's getting a bit too technical. And this is supposed to be a general audience. And so you might be reaching a little bit too far with a term like that. But then I decided I didn't, I didn't know what else to call it. <laughs> so optical tweezers stuck. Um, uh, and the, the pun is that we're going to be using light to do things so we're shedding light on life's molecules. Um, and as you'll see, um, yeah, it's a fascinating tool that I'm going to tell you about tonight. And it's a tool which has been in the news lately because, um, as uh, many of you know, uh, Arthur Ashkin, shown here, um, just won the Nobel Prize this year for the invention of optical tweezers and its biological applications. Um, Art is an amazing individual. He is 96 years old and as such is the oldest living recipient of a Nobel Prize in history. Um, note, you have to be alive to accept the prize. <laughs> Uh, this posed a problem for Art because he was actually diagnosed with uh, lymphoma at the time and had to undergo radiation and chemotherapy. And that treatment prevented him from going to Stockholm uh, to receive his medal. It also prevented him from go giving um, his Nobel lecture there. And he was very disappointed uh, because he'd waited 96 years for this, so to speak. Um, so I run a meeting every two years in Aspen, Colorado. Uh, called the Single Molecule Biophysics Meeting. So I invited Art Ashkin out to Colorado this year to give his Nobel lecture. So Art and his wife, Aline, got on an airplane in January, and we flew them both out to Aspen, Colorado, and he gave his Nobel lecture uh, to the amazed crowd uh, in the Wheeler Opera House in Aspen. So if, if you're bored with my lecture tonight, or conversely, if you're fascinated by my lecture tonight, um, I would urge you to get onto Google, and all you have to do is Google Art Ashkin, and Aspen. And uh, the first hit that will come up is Arthur Ashkin's lecture, which was televised, and you can listen to it there. It's a marvelous, um, a marvelous accounting um, from his historical perspective uh, how this came about. I'll give you a little bit of it, but uh, I ran the slides for his lecture in Aspen, and it was, it was uh, yeah, truly a once-in-a-lifetime event. So what is optical tweezers? Um, optical tweezers, as, as you can see from the picture in the lower right, is about the closest thing to a tractor beam that humans have ever produced using an invisible beam of laser uh, in, um, uh, irradiation, in this case from an infrared laser, you can grasp and manipulate things under the microscope. It doesn't work in the world of spaceships. It doesn't work in the world of you and me. It works in the microcosm uh, under the microscope on the scale of micrometers. Uh, and it's very simple in terms of how you build it. All you need to do is take a laser. Here's a laser. You pass it through a lens and you make what's called a diffraction-limited spot. Those of you who know a little bit of physics know that you can't focus light to a perfect point. About the best you can do is to focus light down to a tiny little area whose dimensions are the wavelength of light itself. So you can focus down to the wavelength of light. And when you do that, 
you will have created essentially a three-dimensional gradient in light because it, the property of a focus is that no matter what direction I approach a focus from, light will get brighter. Now, it so happens that small transparent objects, little dielectric objects, actually feel a force that directs them towards where the light is brighter. This is called the gradient force, and it's the basis of optical tweezers. It hadn't been fully appreciated uh, until Arthur Ashkin came along and showed us how we could uh, actually use it to good effect. Um, an optical trap, therefore, is nothing more than essentially a three-dimensional spring uh, made out of light whose stiffness we can control, which can grasp and manipulate small particles. And never mind the physics here, all that is a formula just saying that things feel a force towards where the light is brighter. That's all that, that's all that, that formula says. Um, and so Art, Art Ashkin built an optical trap. He did so uh, back in 1986 was the first one that was produced. That's the citation that's there. Um, and for those of you who have never seen an optical trap, it's really quite amazing. Um, before I show you the video, I should tell you about E. coli. Raise your hand if you've heard of E. coli. All right, most of you heard of E. coli. Um, there are more E. coli in this room than there are you and me, because in our, in our intestines right now, uh, there's a veritable sea of bacteria, E. coli being one of the more prominent ones, and they swim around very happily digesting the same meals that you thought you were digesting. Um, and there's a story that goes with that that I won't tell. Uh, but... Um, uh, one, of the, one of the amazing things you can do with an optical trap is you can actually use it to grab and manipulate individual bacteria while they're swimming around. And so here's the video. You're going to see in phase contrast microscopy, E. coli swimming around. They have flagella, which are so small you don't see them, but you see the cell bodies, and we grabbed one. We've got it. And now we control the horizontal and the vertical. We're using external optics. We're simply moving our laser beam around. And the poor bacterium is trapped. And we can move it fast and we can move it slowly. We can also go up and down in the, in the same direction as the optical axis. This is in the Z direction. We'll come close to a cover glass. You'll see other cells come into focus briefly then come up again. And then go down again and go up again. And we can also go in X and in Y. And as I'm fond of saying, before the animal rights activists complain, we're going to turn off the trap and it'll swim away. Here we go free. All right, that is an optical twe tweezers. Uh, and that's what Ashkin got the Nobel Prize for. And so you can properly ask, what good is it? Well, what good, is it, what good it is um, will come in the second half of the talk. But first, I want to take a little bit of a historical perspective on how it is that Art Ashkin got to this, this point. And I have to rewind the story all the way back to the 1970s. In fact, I could rewind to the mid-60s. In the mid-1960s, the laser was invented. And Art Ashkin was one of the very first scientists who went after the question of um, how does the radiation pressure generated by a laser affect, affect matter? Um, radiation pressure is extremely feeble. It was um, the German astronomer Johannes Kepler uh, of Kepler's Laws who first uh, suggested that the reason that comet tails point away from the sun is they're pushed in that direction by the solar wind, by radiation pressure which uh, ex ex is exerted on small particles being emanating from the comet. And he was right, uh, but it took another couple of hundred years before James Clark Maxwell came along with Maxwell's equations. And on the basis of balance of energy, he showed that yes, indeed, laden through radiation pressure, or indeed any, any radiation, could produce a small amount of pressure, except the number was so feeble that it took to the 20th century before humans were actually able to measure it. It was that small. Um, 
But when the laser came along, Ardash could realize, here's the most powerful source of light we have, we've ever produced. Maybe I can use it to affect particles. And so what he did, and this is a hand drawing that Art did himself, is he took a little cuvette, a little, a little, a little, a little glass box, and filled it with water. And in that box, he placed a tiny sphere, or actually put a number of such tiny spheres. These are little polystyrene spheres, also, also called latex spheres. They're the same thing that you find in latex paint. Latex paint is basically thousands or millions of these spheres with a bit of pigment mixed in. So he took this and he, sh he shined a laser beam into the cuvette. Now, a laser beam has the property that it's bright on the center of the axis and gets dim as you go out to the sides. And the profile of a, a, a laser is actually a Gaussian, for those of you who know a little bit of math. Uh, so it's bright on the center and dim towards the side. And when he shined the laser in, lo and behold, one of these spheres just took off, boom, and went slamming into the bottom of the cuvette and then it stayed there. And then he could go after other spheres and that would happen to them too. And if that's all he had done, uh, he would have demonstrated that, of course, you, laser radiation pressure is significant on the scale of something that's very small. But he noticed something else about it. He noticed, and you'll notice too, that the particle is actually being swept towards the center of the beam. So not only is it being pushed down the direction of the beam as if it were being propelled like the blade on a turbine when you hit it with a jet of, of water, for example, it's actually being sucked into the middle of the beam. And so he thought about this for a while, and he realized what was going on. There are lots of vectors and arrows here, and you don't have to pay too much attention to it, except to notice the fact that when light passes through an object, the object acts like a lens. It bends the light. And so here's a ray of light shown in A. It gets bent and comes out there. And the difference in direction between coming in, which is horizontal, and coming out, which is this direction, um, is, is shown in this direction. It gives a rise to a force component um, opposite to the direction of this bending. And that's because Newton's third law tells us for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So if I am uh, a blade of a turbine and I deflect water, I feel a force that pushes me down. And the force is equal to the momentum change in the water because momentum is conserved. So it's true for light as well. Uh, and um, normally this force shown by Fa would be the same as, as the force due to the other ray which came in on the other side, Fb, except forget, you forgetting for the moment that this is a Gaussian beam. The beam is brighter on the center. So the ray A here has more photons in it and therefore more force than the one in B. So B produces a small reaction force shown here. A produces a large one, and when you sum those two, you get a net force, which is roughly up and to the left, the right. You're right, my left. And that's why these things are being pulled into the center of the beam. And he called that the gradient force, and he was able to use that to build the world's first optical levitation. Um, here, um, it was in the cover of Scientific American, actually, in 1972, and most of you were not alive in 1972 to see this cover of Scientific American. But he shined a laser into a, uh, another cuvette, and here uh, the sphere is being levitated by the radiation pressure. And what he did is he built a feedback circuit. If the, if the sphere went too high, he had to turn down the laser to keep it from blasting into the top. So he's basically modulating the laser up and down to keep this thing sort of steady, lev steady, steadily levitating there. Now, this was the first optical levitation, and it was published in a paper, but it was not an optical trap, because in the Z direction, the thing is just feeling a force down beam. It took another 10, 15 years to realize that by being really clever about the optics, you could make this truly a trap in all three dimensions, not just in the two dimensions that are shown here. And so we fast forward to 1986, 
And Art Ashkin realized that if you focus the light tightly enough, what would happen is that the rays of light which went through the sphere, which would again be bent, and they would come out of the sphere with less divergence than they came into the sphere, and that would produce a net force which went upwards, pulling it back up towards where the focus was. And in fact, he even published a picture of that. This is an actual picture from his original paper in which he had a sphere trapped here, which is scattering light. You don't see the sphere, but it's scattering light. And this is the light that's coming in. This is the light that's coming out. And if you put some little arrows on it, as I've done here, you can see that the angle of light coming in is broader than the angle of light coming out. There are these extra bits on either side. That means the light is being focused in the forward direction by the sphere. That focusing the light downwards produces an upwards force which holds the thing in the trap. Thus was born optical tweezers. And now we come to the biological applications for which Art Ashkin uh, got the Nobel Prize as well. And um, this technique is one of several that has driven the new field of single molecule biophysics. And as George said in the introduction, introduction I pretty much have to do it because I'm Stephen Michael Block. So those are my initials. Um, Single molecule biophysics is a relatively recent field, and there are a number of techniques that have been driving it. Single molecule fluorescence is one of those techniques. There are magnetic traps as well. There's atomic force microscopy. But the technology I'm going to tell you about tonight, which has really uh, been in there helping uh, along with the others, is the optical trap. And so you can ask, well, why do single molecule biophysics at all when you can sit there with a test tube and work on large ensembles of many molecules and get answers which are much more stable? Uh, so the analogy I would draw is it's a bit like um, imagining you're trying to um, sail a vessel, say, from New York to San Francisco. Um, if the vessel's small enough, you'd go right through the Panama Canal and your trajectory would look like that. If, on the other hand, you had a Panamax vessel which exceeded the size of the canal, you'd be forced to go around Cape Horn, a difficult journey, uh, but you'd still get to San Francisco. Now, if you will, consider the average trajectory taken by a ship traveling between New York and San Francisco. That would look something like this. And let me assure you, to my knowledge, no vessel has ever taken this journey. You would go through the jungles of Brazil. Um, they would pass um, through the mountains of Bolivia. You'd come out into the Atacama Desert, the driest place on Earth, I think, unless, unless Saudi Arabia is even drier. Um, and uh, go through the back, back into the continent, um, passing through Peru, where my car colleague Carlos Bustamante is from. And then you come out into the water and finally make it up to San Francisco. So the point here is that if you, all you can measure is ensemble averages, you might be inclined to reach the wrong conclusion from time to time. And it's much better to look at individual things. Um, the biological uh, analogy to that is something called a gel. So this is, as it says here, is the workhorse of biochemistry. Um, uh, most biochemists have at one time or another worked with these things. There's, it is literally a gel, and you can pass small molecules through it. In this case, we're looking at the, um, a molecule of RNA being made by RNA polymerase. And when the molecule's small, it goes to the bottom of the gel. When the molecule gets longer and longer and longer, it gets, finds it harder and harder to pass through the gel, and so it winds up at the top. And you're driving them through the gel with an electric field, which is trying to push these charged molecules. Uh, and what most of you already noticed is that these, these are not um, schmears, but they're, they're individual bands that you see here. The individual bands are the individual base positions um, of the RNA that's made. And the RNA that's 
and this band is one base longer than the RNA in that band, which is one base longer than the RNA in the band above that. Um, but what you don't learn from this gel is whether, for example, when there's a dark space, whether all the little molecules paused for a long time there, or um, uh, just a few of them paused and went on, uh, but they paused for a very long time. You don't know, in other words, um, whether, they whether a few paused for a long time or all of them paused for a short time. What you learn about is that the darkness of the band is the product of the time and the number. So this is analogous, as you might think, to looking at, uh, for example, a marathon from an altitude of several hundreds of feet. You really can't quite make out the individual runners as you'd like, but you can make out agglomerations of them near the water tables and so forth. And so that tells you something about runner behavior, but it's not really what you want. What you really want to do is study somebody like this. Here's Robert Chariot of Kenya, who's the four-time winner of the Boston Marathon. Um, you want to study the physiology uh, that makes possible marathon running like this. And so it's possible today, by analogy, using optical traps to get records that look like this. This is an individual molecule of RNA polymerase moving along DNA. Now, RNA polymerase is the enzyme that reads the genetic code. It's the enzyme that takes the message that's in DNA, the instructions in DNA, and encodes that into an RNA, that's the messenger RNA, which eventually is used to make proteins. And so um, this is possible today with single molecule techniques. And notice now you can see individual pauses that take place, short pauses, long pauses, long, still longer pauses. So you can learn about the physiology of individual molecules. And that is the power of single molecule biophysics. And it's been made possible by the optical trap. So I'm gonna take you back and rewind the history a little bit. Um, to talk about what is here, the mother of all single molecule assays. Before single channels and neurons, before any of that, there was E. coli. You've already seen E. coli. What you didn't see in the video that I showed were these flagella because they're too small to scatter enough light. But bacteria swim by literally rotating their flagellar filaments the way a propeller turns on a submarine and that propels the cell forward. And cells move in normally in random walks um, and they can move up gradients of things because they will extend the components of the walks in the direction where the food is better. Um, and as a result of that, they do a random walk with superposed drift and they will move up the gradient. And this was first worked out by a guy named Howard Berg, um, who was actually my thesis advisor. And back in 1974, they discovered a really cool thing, which is that you could actually take a bacterium and you could break off a lot of these filaments because they're kind of brittle. And you could stick down uh, one of the filaments, this is sticking it down by the stubble that's left, uh, to a glass cover glass like this. And when you did that, um, the motor that's trying to turn the flagellar filament instead winds up turning the whole body of the cell. So this is a case of the tail wagging the dog. And it goes round and round. And what you're actually studying is the output of this thing, which has since been the structure of which has since been solved. This is what it looks like in three dimensions. This is one of the smallest rotary motors in the world. It's about the size of a small virus. And it's propelled by a current of protons. And there's a whole lecture that goes into that that I can't give you today, but it's an utterly fascinating thing. And it's an example of one of many of the really cool motors in nature whose study has been made possible in part through the invention of the optical trap. Anyway, you saw the video before. Let me show you this video. Here, when I, when I start it running, you're going to see a lot of cells. They're going to be white this time on a dark background. And you're going to be able to sell, see that some of these cells are actually tethered by a filament and are going round and round. And I want you to look at this guy in particular. Sometimes the motor goes around clockwise, and that corresponds to um, uh, tumbling in space. And sometimes it goes around counterclockwise, and that corresponds to running. So the, the clockwise and counterclockwise behavior of this map onto runs, tumbles, runs, tumbles, runs, tumbles. And so you can do the physiology of a cell without ever having it leave your field of view. Here we go. 
Everybody see it turn around the other way? Moves one way, goes the other way, goes the other way. So what you're really looking at now is the output of this tiny, tiny little motor, very, very much smaller than the wavelength of light, and you're doing it because you're looking at uh, something which is around the wavelength of light, a little bit bigger, uh, E. coli, which is only about a micron or two long. So this is the power of a single molecule assay. Um, instead of trying to track a bacterium as it swims through the gradient, you can now waft chemicals over the cell and look at its response. And you could sit there for hours at a time studying the output of one motor. So this was, this was made possible because of this very fortuitous uh, fact that you can tether a single bacterium and look at, a, uh, look at a motor. That's not possible with a lot of the other motors that are in nature. You have to sort of go after them with other ways. And this is where the optical trap really comes in handy. Um, so soon after it was invented, actually, um, Howard Berg, that same individual, and myself set up an optical trap in Boston. And we were actually able to measure um, the compliance, the twisty, bendy twistiness of the connection of the flagellar filament to the cell body. So this is one of the first um, quantitative measurements ever made on an assembly of proteins. This particular assembly has about 120 subunits. And as you'll see in a little bit, we've got down to the point now where we could look at uh, literally one protein if we want to using optical traps. So historically, this is the first use of optical traps for quantitative measurement. And I'm going to tell you now about something that's uh, pursued, um, in fact, right here at NYU AD and, um, and a lot of labs around the world, the protein kinesin. So as you're listening to me, you're hearing me because your brain is processing this information. Um, kinesin is abundant in your brain. In fact, it's present in nearly all eukaryotic cells, but particularly in nerve cells. Um, and the reason is because when cells fire, they need to uh, have electrical synapses. The synapses require chemicals. Where do those chemicals come from? They need proteins. They need small molecules. Well, the cell generates them. But proteins are generated near the nucleus of the cell. How do you get it out to the end of the cell? For example... Um, here in the, in, your, um, uh, in the base of your spine is a neuron that innervates your big toe. So the cell body is up here, but your big toe is down there. Um, if you waited for diffusion to bring these proteins down there, you'd wait a month of Sundays or Fridays in order to get this down here. Um, instead, what cells have developed is a, is a transport system, uh, and kinesin is the motor in that transport system that goes in one direction, and dynein, which is studied by other people here at this meeting, um, is the motor that goes in the other direction. Uh, and what happens is the cell will package the chemicals, the cargo that it needs, up into a small vesicle, shown here in blue, and the kinesin uh, motor will move on a microtubule to take this as far as it needs to, in some cases, um, uh, uh, a great length. So what about what is what can I tell you about kinesin? Well, first of all, it's it's fueled by this famous molecule ATP that most of you know about. This is the this is the energy that fuels um, most processes in biology, not all of them. Um, the bacterial motor actually doesn't run on ATP, but most uh, most motors do. Um, it, as I said before, it's found in all kinds of cells. It's really essential for life because kinesin is part of the as the founding member of a family of proteins. And among those proteins are the ones that are responsible for removing the chromosomes apart during mitosis. So if you couldn't do that, you couldn't divide. So kinesin is essential for life. Uh, it's a popular target for uh, anti-cancer drugs. And there are certain diseases that you, that, that, uh, in which kinesin has been implicated, including um, motor neuron disease, some, certain types of diabetic neuropathy, and so forth. So it's important. Um, here is a video that was put together by some folks at Harvard, um, which sort of shows how kinesin can walk along a microtubule. It's missing important stuff like the random Brownian motion that occurs, but it, gives, it conveys a sense of how the two heads of this motor, 
successively move one after the other in discrete steps and carrying a cargo along their way. And most of the information that informed this video came from optical traps. It came from experiments in which something like this was recapitulated in a test tube and people measured the size of the step and the speed of the step and the force produced and how much ATP was used. And most of what we know um, is due to single molecule assays like this one. Here, we've replaced the cargo with a bead. This is the same kind of bead that Arthur Ashkin studied in his um, early work. And uh, we can dilute down the number of kinesin motors on the bead until we have, on average, just one motor on the bead, and then place it on a microtubule using an optical trap. And then, never mind the details, we can do some fancy microscopy these days, which allows us to measure the position of this bead to nanometer and even today, angstrom-level sensitivity. So here is a video. We've captured a bead, uh, sorry, a bead that has a, um, a kinesin motor on it. We're placing it on a microtubule, and away it goes. And then it falls back into the trap. And then it moves again, it falls back into the trap. We'll capture it again. We'll place it on the microtubule. The motor will engage, move, and fall back. Move, and fall back. So this is the basis of a kinesin assay. And of course, the motions is very hard to see in the video because it's only a few pixels, but we have fabulously accurate ways of measuring that displacement with computers these days. And this is sort of what you get. Um, you can see that the motion is not um, uh, taking place continuously, but at a series of discrete steps. And those steps measure eight nanometers. They were first measured back in 1993. Here's a, another indication of that. This, this is a kinesin motor that occasionally makes it, the bead move, and you're seeing the displacement record at the same time as you see the motion. And it's kind of noisy towards the center of the trap, but as it gets out towards the end, you can start to, maybe if you've got a good eye, see there, boom, 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 different discrete little steps that occur. Here is back, it's going back and forth by a step or two. And there's another record, step, step, step. But it's kind of noisy, a little bit hard to see. And that's because this is so-called open-loop measurement. It's kind of, it, these kind, we got a lot better at making these measurements than this technique. But this was the first way in which steps were historically seen. We got better because we developed something called a force clamp. A force clamp is a device so that when the motor moves, you move the trap along with it to keep the force exactly balanced, exactly the same. And when you do that, you can see step records that look like this, where there are some 30 or so steps in the record, every one of them beautifully about the same size. Um, you can, this is, this is, a, this is a, something called a Fourier transform, but this tells you basically the, uh, the average size of that step. It's narrowly distributed around a space of 8.2 nanometers, which happens to be a magic number because the microtubule that's moving on is made out of dimers of a protein called tubulin, and each of those dimers is separated uh, along the axis here by 8.2 nanometers. So that is how kinesin steps, and this was learned using optical trapping techniques. Um, that's not the only thing you learn. Of course, we'd love to understand how fuel is consumed and how the chemistry, the biochemical cycle of kinesin is somehow coupled to the mechanical state of the motor to allow it to move. Remember you saw in the video that it moved hand over hand. Why does it choose left and then right? And how does it know not to make two left steps in a row? And how, does it, how, much, how much force can it produce? And um, how fast can it go? And um, how efficient is it with respect to um, uh, to its use of the fuel. How far does it go on average before it lets go? Um, how much force can it produce? All these things are experimental questions we can get at uh, by using some of this optical trapping technology. And as you can see today, the records of force look very much better than they did in those very early days that you saw in the video.
Um, I'm particularly fond of this um, because I grabbed this video um, from the web. This is from something called Discovery Science. There's actually a channel on YouTube called Discovery Science. It's not actually about science. It's about a group of people who believe in intelligent design, and they look at these wonderful machines in nature, like the bacterial rotary motor and the Kinesin motor, and um, they say, well, this is not something we study with science. This is a product of a greater intelligence. Uh, but they've taken a lot of time and money and effort to try to make pretty videos. So here's a nice video from them showing Kinesin moving. It's even prettier than the one I showed you before. And it shows part of the problem, which is that in a real cell, of course, you're filled with a dense array of microtubules, and every once in a while, the vesicle gets hung up on this stuff, and so the motor, you know, really can't get going anywhere, and so it comes off or it treads in place. What does it do? Well, we can answer those questions by doing experiments. Um, the cell can often solve that problem by hooking up more than one motor. So here, um, you're seeing another vesicle that actually has a couple of motors, which can help it get, in some cases, overcome obstacles. They can even reverse directions or shift filaments and all that. Um, without going into a lot of detail, um, uh, um, the, today we understand what might, you might call the biochemical cycle of kinesin, by which ATP is hydrolyzed to ADP, and we go round and round and round this cycle, and we can understand how kinesin steps, where in the cycle the step takes place, where backstepping, which happens every so often, takes place, when it lets go, where in the cycle it lets go. And all of these arrows and so forth are now modeled quantitatively uh, thanks to measurements made with optical traps. I'm not going to bore you with the details. I'm going to go on to another topic. Uh, they say when your only tool is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, if your tool is an optical trap, you can measure motors, and everything begins to look like a motor. Um, there's this famous uh, expression due to Watson and Crick called the central dogma of molecular biology. It's the notion about information flow, that DNA has information which flows to RNA, which has information which then flows to protein. And the central dogma is carried out by some very, very important enzymes without which there would be no life. Um, there's DNA polymerase, which makes more DNA. There's RNA polymerase, I already mentioned that at the beginning of the lecture. That's the enzyme that reads this code and makes a corresponding RNA whose sequence is complementary uh, to one of the strands of the DNA and bears that same information. Uh, and then, of course, that messenger RNA is then made into protein. Um, uh, this codes for instructions, and the protein complex uh, that, uh, that did this um, is, called the, is the, called the ribosome. And by the way, there's a Nobel Prize for the structure of this, a Nobel Prize for the structure of that, and a Nobel Prize for the structure of that. Uh, so these are very, very important enzymes, and all of these can be studied uh, uh, as motors because they really are motors if you think about it. They glom onto their substrate, and they carry out many, many uh, successive enzymatic reactions moving in a particular direction um, uh, towards, uh, towards the end. So they are said to be processive motors, and... Uh, our lab in particular has made a big study of RNA polymerase. So here's RNA polymerase. You can think of it as a very sophisticated nanomachine. Um, its dimensions are on the order of 10 nanometers across, um, which is um, uh, actually very small for, the, um, uh, for a, um, a motor, but very large for a protein. Um, this is the enzyme uh, which actually transcribes DNA into, into in E. coli. It transposes into messenger RNA transfer RNA and ribosomal RNA, for those of you who know about the different kinds of RNAs. Um, there's one enzyme in E. coli that does it all, and in you and me, uh, there are three or four different enzymes that, that carry out these roles, but they're all RNA polymerases. 
So it's about 3,300 amino acids, which is big for a protein, but small for a machine. That whole thing is, as I say, is 10 nanometers across. You could put um, 50 of them side by side in the wavelength of green light. So it decodes the template, and never mind the details. But what's interesting about this is the exquisite regulation, because this is where genes get controlled for the most part. It's at the top of the food chain, so to speak, with respect to control of genes. And there are over 100 different factors in E. coli alone that can interact with this protein and modulate its behavior. And biochemists have a way of talking about this. Um, this thing needs to start at some point, so that's called initiation, and then it goes along making RNA, that's called elongation, and then it has to stop at some point, that's called termination. But you should think of this as just um, start, go, and stop. And they're just fancy words for very simple behavior. We can set up assays in which we, for example, can pull on the RNA, or pull on the DNA, or pull on the polymerase. We can do all that with optical traps. And so I'll tell you a little bit about one of the experiments that we did, which is we were looking for, to see if this thing stepped the way kinesin stepped, except the steps of this thing are going to be very, very much smaller. So to do that, it took us 10 years or more, but we finally achieved what you might call angstrom-level sensitivity. Um, in order to do this, we had to use a number of tricks. Uh, one thing is we had to move into the basement uh, for our lab because ground-borne vibration will shake the room. We had to move into a room that's temperature isolated. Why? Because the temperature is a little bit higher on one side of the room than the other. The metals that make up our microscope would expand and contract and move. And they move at speeds of angstroms a second. Um, we had to make the room acoustically isolated. Because if you talk as I'm talking right now, your voice shakes the air, the air shakes the apparatus, and it picks up a microphonic. And you think your motor's moving, but it's in fact your voice that's shaking it. Um, you have to worry about electrical isolation. We even had to worry about the fact that when you shine a laser beam through the air, the beam isn't perfectly steady. And that's for the same reason the stars twinkle in the sky. When you look up at the star, that light came you direct until it hit the last, oh, hundred or so um, miles of the Earth's atmosphere. And then all sorts of craziness happened because the Earth's atmosphere has, uh, has gas in it and that changes the refractive index and makes the stars wiggle and twinkle and that's why it's so good to go up in the Hubble Space uh, Telescope where you're above all that. Today we have fancy adaptive optics on telescopes that allow us to compensate for some of that. But even sending a laser across a lab down through a distance of a meter will set the beam twinkling uh, but now twinkling at the level of angstrom. So you'd, you'd never notice it, I'd never notice it, but our apparatus will notice it. So one of the tricks we did is we actually took a um, helium tank and we filled up the external optics outside of the microscope with helium. And that's because helium is a poor man's vacuum. It has a refractive in it, which is almost uh, 10 times closer to vacuum uh, than air. And when we did that, we measured the noise in our system. And again, this is more of the, for the physicists, this is an easy way to think about it. Um, the, the, the red curve is the noise in our apparatus as a function of frequency. The blue curve is the one we actually work with. That's when we have the helium present. And what you can see is that the noise is below this level, this dotted line. That dotted line is the one angstrom line. It, what this is saying is that we can measure the displacement of something with our apparatus down to better than an angstrom, and we can do it as fast as maybe 50 times a second. So to put it in perspective, one angstrom is the diameter of a hydrogen atom. So this technique is so sensitive that we can measure the position of our enzyme to within the diameter of a hydrogen atom 50 times a second. At that, with that level of sensitivity, we're finally able to go after the individual steps. Before I, before I show you those steps, I want to 
tell you how sensitive this apparatus is. I told you if you talked, you pick up a spurious signal, right? So one of my students came into the came into the, the room and played his little CD player and then recorded the signal from the apparatus and then played it back as a wave file through the computer and you could hear the music. In fact, this is the world's most expensive low fidelity recording. <laughs> So that's less than one nanometer peak-to-peak amplitude, right? So that the signal here is bouncing up and down by less than a billionth of a meter. But you play it back just like a record. <laughs> and that hiss you hear in the background, that's real Brownian motion, folks. All right, so that was fun with science. Uh, all right, so we're actually after, uh, after things other than songs. Um, the assay that we did is a two uh, optical trap assay. And it turns out the reason we had to go to two optical traps is that if you simply had the thing sitting on the surface, the surface, no matter how we did, tried to stabilize it, the surface was still bouncing up and down too much that we couldn't hold it steady enough to measure an angstrom. What we had to do is levitate the whole preparation optically. And the way we did that is to use two optical traps. We have a bead in each one of them. And there's our enzyme hooked on the surface of this. Now, this is not drawn to scale because if the enzyme were really that size, the bead would be the size of this auditorium. So you have this tiny little enzyme, and on uh, one side we've got uh, it hooked, the DNA hooked up to a bead, on the other side we have it hooked up to, the enzyme hooked up to this bead, and so this will try to move along the DNA and spew out an RNA. That's just the little red thing as we go. So here's a little video that shows what's going on here. This, we call this a dumbbell assay because this looks like a dumbbell. And so here's one of these dumbbells. We're going to set it in motion in a second. This is a, we'll do real-time video. One of the beads is actually stuck to the glass surface. The other bead is running around like a mad dog on a leash because it's actually tethered by this piece of DNA. And the enzyme's on the surface of that small bead. But of course, you can't see the enzyme. You can't see the DNA, but you can see that this. And at the same time we're doing this, we're actually going to calibrate our apparatus. And that's what's, what's happening here. We've taken a bead. We've captured it. And we're going to use it to map out the sensitivity of our detector. Here it is in, uh, blown up a little bit. We're actually we're going to scan the bead in a raster pattern. And as we do that, we map out the departure from linearity of our detector in both the X and Y directions. And when we subtract out this background, we can now start to measure it within an angstrom. So here's an actual experiment. We're going to get ready to run it. There's one of those uh, dumbbells. We're going to pick it up in two traps. We picked up the right one, picked up the left one, and now we levitate it. So these go out of focus. This is in sharp focus, and now we're going to stretch it. And as we stretch it to the end, you'll see the right bead starts to move. See it stretch, see the right bead start to move there? Why did we do that? We did that to make sure that we have one DNA molecule hooking this to that. If we had two DNA molecules, it would have twice the stiffness. So by measuring the stiffness, by pulling it like that, we can determine that we really are in the single molecule regime and that we have truly one polymerase hooked to one DNA. And now we're ready to run the experiment. We're going to flow in the nucleotides, which are needed to synthesize the RNA, and it's going to move. So that's shown in this video. And there it goes. Now we spin this up so that two seconds is a minute. And we're looping it because this only happens once. This gets shorter and shorter and shorter as this polymerase tries to move along the DNA and reels it in. And then the experiment stops, but we loop the video so you get to see it again. By measuring that, that position of this bead, we can determine where the polymerase was moving and where it stopped. And you can see, see these transcriptional pauses very nicely on this.
Um, in fact, we're going to blow it up. This is the record. Shown in pink is the noise, which you can barely see. Shown in black is the actual position signal as a function of time. And now you see a great richness in the data. We're going to blow it up by an order of magnitude. And now, again, you can see the noise. You can see the smooth data. And there, there is a transcriptional pause. There's another one. There's another pause. There's another pause. We're not really interested in the pauses now, though. We're looking for steps. So we're going to blow it up by another order of magnitude. And now, finally, you get to see the individual steps that this thing takes. Sometimes it's so fast you don't see it, but you notice it stops there, then it goes to there, and then it goes to there. And each of these little blue grid lines has been drawn 3.4 angstroms in the last. Why is that an interesting number? That's the number that Watson and Crick told us way back in their paper in 1952-53, that the bases of DNA are stacked one above each other uh, by 3.4 angstroms. And here are some more records um, just to see. And again, we, when it goes fast, we can't really tell, but you can see individual steps. Boom, 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 boom. So this thing really is moving 3.4 bases at a time, and we can, we can do that. There are lots of things you can do once you can see base pair motions. You can look at backtracking. You can look at error correction. You can look at um, uh, a rejection of the wrong base. You can even do DNA sequencing this way. Um, so there's lots of experiments that come out of the ability to see things at this level. And finally, um, you can use this technique to study the molecule DNA or RNA itself. This is a technique that was pioneered by Jan Lippard originally, working with Carlos Bustamante. And Michael Woodside in my lab sort of went to town with this. You can engineer a small hairpin, for example, of DNA um, and put it between two handles. The handles have to be long enough so that you can get the traps close to one another. If the traps are closer than the wavelength of light, this doesn't work. So you have to have the traps separated by just about the wavelength of light. That doesn't sound like much. But that's practically a thousand bases. Um, so once you've done this, you can start measuring these things and looking at um, uh, the progress of this reaction. And as you might expect, um, if you put a lot of force on the end, end of the ends of the hairpin, you'll pull it apart like this. And if you reduce the force, it'll come back together like this. And it's basically a two-state system. It, it flickers uh, between fully open and fully closed. And it does, it does so very, very quickly. Uh, it's a very cooperative reaction. Once it starts zipping up, it goes and zips all the rest of the way. And as you change the force, um, you get it mostly closed or mostly open. And there's a place in between where it spends about 50% of its time open and 50% of its time closed, and very little of its time in transition in between. These are almost Gaussians. For, for the experts among you, there are small departures from being Gaussian there that we can actually measure that tell us even more about the system. Uh, and you can measure what's the probability of being open as a function of load, and you get this uh, very nice behavior. This is an equation, never mind the equation, but um, that's the same as the Boltzmann equation. So if you've heard of the Boltzmann factor, this is, this is his equation, and it tells us something about the energetics of the system. In particular, we can measure um, what force it takes to have this thing 50% of the time open and 50% of the time closed, and that force is about 13 piconewtons. That's a decimal point, 12 zeros, and a newton. What's a newton? A newton is about the weight of an apple. So um, it's one, one part in, a, in, what is it, trillion of a weight of an apple. Uh, and it opens through a distance of two, um, uh, uh, sorry, 18 nanometers. Those are billionths of a meter. So again, the wavelength of light is 500 nanometers. So this is, this is again, 20th or so of the wavelength of light. The product of a distance and a force is an energy, and that's important because it turns out we can use this to measure the energetics of the formation of this hairpin. 
And you can go to town with us, my goodness. Since we can synthesize DNA with anything we want in it, we can make, for example, make the loop bigger, or we could make the stem longer, or we could dial in little mismatches and measure those. Um, and so basically we can create a different kind of potential surface and then measure how that compares with um, our models. And in fact, the models and the solutions are very close to one another now. It's possible to predict um, what you think the energetic landscape of this opening will be, and you can then go and measure it, at, um, and you get fairly good agreement. So this has been a kind of tour of the different techniques. Um, you can get even fancier, and I want to take you right now to the uh, sort of state of the art uh, because tomorrow in the conference um, that I've been invited to, I'm going to be talking a little bit about these things, which are called riboswitches. So there are many, many different ways of controlling genes, but one of the ways that was discovered relatively recently is that upstream of the part of the gene that actually codes for proteins, there's an untranslated region in some genes, particularly in bacteria, which can fold up and make a shape. And that shape can actually then bind materials, and depending on whether it binds the material or not, can control the downstream genes. So it's a ribonucleic acid switch, or riboswitch, which is responsive uh, to the chemical milieu, to the environment. Uh, and so uh, as, as it comes off of RNA polymerase, it starts to fold. And it's actually possible with optical traps to watch these things folding in real time while that happens. And I won't share the data with you about this, but simply say that this is a very exciting new, new avenue for science because now for the first time in history, we can actually watch this con confirma conformational process as folding takes shape. Um, and other people are using optical traps today, for example, to study protein folding as well as nucleic acid folding. So it's a really unique tool that affords some very special advantages. And I hope I've given you the flavor today of of some of those techniques and how helpful they can be uh, to those of us, particularly those of us who are interested in single molecule biophysics. Um, so I thought I'd finish with some fun. Um, one of my uh, former postdocs um, had, had some students who built, um, using optical traps, the world's smallest game of Tetris. So this is uh, about, oh, I don't know, about 30, 40 microns on an edge uh, seen through a microscope. Uh, what they did is they programmed this by making multiple optical traps. If you have an optical trap that's on here, and you turn off the light and you quick move it over here, you'll have another optical trap that's over there. If you do this quickly enough between the two, you'll essentially have two optical traps, except they'll only be there half of the time. If you do it really fast, it looks like two lights. Well, if you can do it with two, you can do it with three, you can do it with four, you can do it with five. How about with 50? Well, you can do that. So here it is, the world's smallest game of Tetris. This is actually being played by one of the students. This is a video recording of his, of his failure, as you'll see, um, to play this game. He starts off strong, but he gets, uh, starts to make some mistakes. So there, that's a perfect piece to come down here, and that allows you to clear out two rows. Excellent. And so the game continues. And that's very good. He's getting some good pieces here. Uh, that clears out that row. Uh, this won't fit in there, but that's not so good, but... We'll just stack it up, uh, rotate this one. That's good. That'll clear out the middle row there. So as I say, he's a strong player at first, but then he starts really making some terrible mistakes. Of course, as these things start piling up, eventually you get into big trouble. So this is all done with one laser, which is time-sharing its position amongst many, many different places. And this is the most impractical use of an optical trap I've ever seen. <laughs> 
and yet I'm captivated by this video. I can't stop watching it. Uh, I guess he'll clear out that row, but uh, things are starting to look bad. Uh, yeah, and he's not responding fast enough, and it's piling up, and bad things are happening, and uh, that's good. I'll get that. Oh, no, that's done it. Uh, okay, and that's Brownian motion. That's the end of the game. All right, so that is, that's true nanotechnology for you folks. Um, I'll finish by simply saying that um, uh, this has been a wonderful ride um, over the years. I've had uh, a large number of people um, work in my laboratory, a couple of whom are here at the meeting. There's Steve Gross out there in the audience, and, and there's Kieran Newman. Shout out to you both. Um, uh, Christoph Schmidt is the person who uh, developed the, the, the Tetris game. Um, I want to acknowledge um, my collaborators, Jeff Gellis, Bob uh, Landick, and Steve Rosenfeld, who over the years have helped with a lot of these assays. And it's just been wonderful to pursue this technology over the years and see how it's improved to the point now where we really do have um, molecular level resolution on the big machines that make life happen. So I'll stop there and thank you for your attention. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.